There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, church attender or not a church attender, um, it's almost universally accepted that the story you've just heard read is such a compelling one that most people acknowledge uh, the wonder and the marvel of it. It turns up in literature, turns up all over the place. It is truly a remarkable story. If you'd have been outside the New South Wales country town of Guyra in the northern part of the state uh, 50 years ago, if you're in the bush just outside of Guyra, this is what you would have heard. Stephen! Stephen! Silence. The person calling out was known as Jacko up in that part of the world. He was a farmer and he just put his little boy, Stephen, into the ute with the dog and gone out of the back of his property to try and claw back some lost animals that had kind of got through the fence. He left Jacko in the front seat, he left Stephen in the front seat of the ute and the dog and he had went off to get the animals. Came back about half an hour later, no Stephen. 
Stephen! Silence. It was three days until he saw him. On record, it's still the largest land and air search taken place in Australia. Seven aircraft droned overhead for two or three days. 5,000 people scoured the countryside. And it wasn't until a very clever and wise old Aboriginal tracker found his tracks and followed them. And as he was following the tracks, even little Stephen was ducking away because he wasn't supposed to talk to strangers. But when the tracker found him, he walked up to him and the first thing that was spoken was by Stephen. And Stephen said to the tracker, where's my daddy? And the tracker said, why do you ask? He said, my daddy's lost and I'm looking for him. I heard Stephen as an old man being interviewed on the radio a year or two ago. The story was still vivid in his mind. And as I was listening to him, I thought, I wonder what it would have been like, what would have transpired had little Stephen never been found. Any parent here wouldn't want to contemplate that. It's too terrible. The idea of being lost, never to be found, abandoned and alone is a horrifying prospect. It's possibly why Jesus, in that chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel, didn't tell just one story of lostness, but told three of them, so very compelling. Why did he tell them? Why pick up that motive, that idea, that emotion? Well, we know from the very beginning of Luke chapter 15, for there were the words, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Story number one, story number two, story number three, the lost son. It's an outrageous story really, isn't it? This father with two boys, it's the longest of the three stories and it's the most detailed. In this story, this younger of the two brothers makes what can only be described as an outrageous request. Dad, give me my share of the estate. Give me my inheritance. How does one normally get an inheritance? Only through death. In effect he's saying, Dad, I want you dead. I wish you were dead so I could have what is mine. Give me my share of the estate. I wonder... And we can only guess, I wonder what longings and yearnings were operating in that young man's mind that he thought the acquisition of the estate would enable him to fulfil. What part of heaven did he think he could enjoy on earth if he had the cash to pursue it? Has that thought ever crossed your mind? Sometimes people wander through the newsagent and they see all the magazines and, and uh, volumes there about camping and photography and physical appearance and fishing and boating and flying and <coughs> cars. Why do they produce those magazines? Because they know that they push the buttons in us. It's our contemporary idolatry. 
if I could go there, have that, look like that, wear this, then my life would be better and I would have joy. Ever thought like that? I have. And sometimes I even find myself doing it of more recent times. Because every stage of life gives a different kind, of a different complexion to that idolatry. Here's this young man. Hasn't worked out what the full payoff will be, but he knows he wants it. See, make no mistake, this is not some polite kid with a private school background. He's talking to his patient and accommodating father. Dad, I want you out of here. This desire to be free, this desire to be unrestrained, this this desire to have it all is tantalising and seductive. I want that. I don't want the commitment of family and home. I don't want the obligation. I want to be free from accountability. I want to be free from God. That's what Jesus is ultimately driving at. If I was free, I could have it. Whether I'm a silly little kid who wants to go to schoolies for a week and live like there is no tomorrow, or I want to be an older person and say, I'm going to cash in whatever I can cash in. I'll even cash in my wife and children and leave. Because I want that freedom. I don't want the security and love of home. I, don't want, I want to be free of you, Dad. I want to live my life, my own way, by my own rules. And we know the story, but I still can't get over it. The father acquiesces and says yes. And I can't get over the other aspect too, which we perhaps don't notice all the time. I mean, we've got four children in our family, and if one child acted outrageously and made a stupid request, the other three would jump on them. This older brother in this family is mute, says nothing. That's not a Middle Eastern family's way of operating. We don't hear words like, don't talk to our dad like that. Who do you think you are? Older brother? Mute. So the younger son has rejected his father. The older son doesn't try to protect the father's honour. And with his desires met, this young man leaves home quickly, very quickly. And from that point of view, it's all happening, isn't it? I mean, uh, you can read in the paper and watch uh, things on television about tree change or sea change and people who want to kind of relocate. This is not this. He's broken free and he's broken free at last. Uh, Back home, there's no more arguments over television, who's got the remote or what I'm going to watch and what I can do. No cleaning your your room kind of rules. He can do whatever he likes, this guy. And parties and prostitutes are all before him and he dives in. This is life. Food in abundance. Sexual delights are on hand to satisfy every desire. It's not just getting away from home. It's all about living without restraint. Ever done that? Even for a day? Are you doing that in your mind and too scared to put it into practice? Well, it's amazing how much temporary respect and temporary adulation money can buy. And of course, while this young son's doing all this, on this path to destruction, the older brother is still back at home, isn't he? Working hard for his dad and obediently, apparently, doing what he's asked. 
And then there is, I suppose in contemporary terms, what you call the global financial crisis. The money runs out, the friends drop away, the good food's gone, the good sex is no more. This young man is ambushed by reality. And it's sudden and it's immediate. Psychologists would say he's entered into a state of, of acute self-awareness. Many years ago, I, I, I have quite eclectic tastes in music. Everything from Beethoven to, well, you name it. Uh, there's a band called Ben Foles Five. You ever heard of them? Yeah, yeah. They've got a song called Evaporated. These are the words, or part of them. What I've kept with me and what I've thrown away and where the hell I've ended up on this glary random day were the things I really cared about just left along the way for being too pent up and proud. Woke up way too late, feeling hungover and old. And the sun was shining bright as I walked barefoot down the road. Started thinking about my old man. Here I stand, sad and free. I can't cry. I can't see. What have I done? Oh God, what have I done? And when I heard that song and that popular, I thought, this is, this is a younger brother. Oh God. What have I done? What have I done? Years ago, a man came to our church where I was pastoring, a middle-aged chap, and he sat in the back seat and he came with this younger woman I thought was his daughter. After some discussion, I discovered that he literally, literally had traded his wife in for a younger model. And it was awful. He'd abandoned her taken up with this very young woman. He had two sons who were starting to get into drugs. Things were spinning out. Uh, he had a baby with this lady, and that's why he came to work out about baptism. But that was soon put aside. And I started to meet with him on a regular basis. And as his life started to unfold, he said to me, Jim, you've no idea what I'm, what I'm like. I said, try me. He said, he told me some of the stuff he'd done and the betrayal and stuff. He said, I just wish I could take my life and put in a washing machine and wash it all clean and have a fresh start. Do you know what I mean, Jim? I said, mate, I know exactly what you mean. And we started talking about Jesus. You see, this young man here, it's not just about fractured friendships or even just a damaged relationship. It's about the whole of his life, all of him. And I think this is realising that something is very wrong and some real serious drastic action is required. See, the good food, the good sex masks the deeper reality. This young man in Jesus' story, and it is Jesus' story, this young man in Jesus' story had ordered the only person committed to his care out of his life. Father. And to the onlooker, that was sheer madness. In the same way, people like you and people like me can say to God, not your way, it will be my way. Get out of my life, leave me alone.
and ultimately it doesn't work. It didn't work for that young man in Jesus' story and it won't work for us. See, the young man in Jesus' story found it going sour a lot sooner than he realised. He, of all people, ends up feeding pigs, this young Jewish man. And in the, in the original text, the food that he's using is actually a lower grade food. It's the worst of the worst. And he even wants to share their food. And that's when this young man starts thinking. And his mind goes back to a time of acceptance. You know, something, something plays on his, in his thinking. I remember, I remember, there was a time of security, a time of loving relationship, of care, of better food and a more comfortable bed and acceptance and love. And he hates his present predicament and he works out a way to go back. And it's like as Jesus tells the story, we're kind of tuning in uh, to the thoughts of this young man, like looking over his shoulder as he's working it out. And he's got a three-point plan that we hear him develop in verses 18 and 19. He says, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Idea. I will set out and go back to my father and I'll say, One, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. That's a big call. That's a big climb down. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Number three, make me like one of your hired servants. It's a very short speech he's prepared and I guess it's going over in his head a number of times as he makes the long journey back. He will save face with his father by working as a servant and not living as a son. And one might well ask what else is going on in his mind because is this a real honest revolution in his thinking? Is it a real repentance or a staged, managed apology? Is it from the heart? Or is it just socially acceptable, a kind of a trade-off, trade-off, a thing that almost a spin doctor might construct? What's going on in this young man? Because meanwhile, while he's doing this and he's heading back home, the older son is still back home, working hard and obediently doing what he's asked. And now the scene shifts in Jesus' story. This young guy gets close to home and things start to come unstuck because at this time, according to Jesus, the father has been keeping a watch out and looking for the lost son. Verse 20 says it. Uh, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. I didn't read that right, did I? No, I didn't read that right. I'll tell you why. I've got two sons. And for a while we were living in ministry in south-west Sydney, working class area, multicultural area. Um, The headquarters uh, of the rebel bikers were in my area. I did a funeral for them once. Um, it was a rough place and it was a train station where our sons, our kids used to catch a train into the, to the school they were going to and you'd, as you walked up the steps of the railway station there were young Vietnamese boys there selling drugs, rohypnol rohies, a dollar for one 
$2 for three. That was what the area was like. And uh, our son had started school. He was in year seven, so he's about 13 years of age. And he was, I used to go down the railway station and pick him up, or my wife did, just middle of winter, uh, very dark, rainy. Train comes in, about 4.15, no sun. 4.30, next train, no sun. 45, 5 o'clock, 5.15, 5.30. What do you reckon was going on in here? What do you think I was thinking? Where's my boy? What's happened? 5.45, train comes in. And it comes Jason down the steps. It wasn't a question of, oh, you were late, get in the car. I went up and grabbed him. Mate, you okay? What happened? There was a long story of things that happened and so on and that delayed him for three or four different reasons. I was thrilled to see him. See, when you read, when you read that verse, verse 20, it's not matter of fact, friends. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. So he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. That's God welcoming home the one who was lost. That's our father doing that. This young man isn't met with disapproval. Instead, to his utter sheer amazement, he sees his father running to him. And in that culture, believe me, that was utterly unacceptable. I know of a pastor who ran through a village in Palestine 15, 20 years ago, who had to resign his ministry, even then, in the 21st century, because he acted unacceptably in that culture. It's like his father runs the gauntlet for him and he witnesses the unexpected invisible demonstration of that man's love. Has the son spoken yet? No, not a word. Not a word. But when he does, something's rather interesting. Because we know the speech. It's got three points. It's a three-point sermon, he's going to say. He does the first bit, and he does the second bit. But he doesn't do the third bit. See, what's happened? There's no reference to his offering of becoming a hired servant. That's cut off. Does his father cut him off or does he not do it? Looks like his father cuts him off in the story. For see, see, he's shattered by his father's demonstration of love and he now knows that he cannot offer any solution. He can't offer a single solution to, his, to the ongoing relationship. It's not the money that's the deal. It's the broken relationship that's at the centre and he cannot heal that. He can offer no solution. His only response is, his only response, I am not worthy. That's all he can say. Now that is getting close to proper repentance. No getting himself ready, no tarting himself up, no bargaining. Good people don't go to heaven. Only bad people go to heaven. Get that straight. Good people don't go to heaven. Only bad people go to heaven when they're forgiven. I said that in a sermon about 15, 20 years ago. 
and afterwards a very well-to-do lady came to me and she said, Mr. Ramsey, may I ask you a question? I said, of course. She said, in your talk you said good people don't go to heaven. Uh, can I ask you that question? I said, yes. Yeah. She said, um, well, what happens to all the good people? I said, whom do you have in mind? And there was a long silence. She said, thank you. <laughs> and then walked away. See, this young man is now starting to express a full, blunt, in-your-face acknowledgement of his rejection of the father. No servant role is being asked. Only a restoration to the son role. You see what the father does? The, the, the father dresses him in the father's robe, the best robe, the first robe. It's good. Look at what the father says. My son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. Lost. Get that word, underline it, and is found. He's home, he's safe. Can you imagine the feeling? I mean, even as I speak it now, I'm still thinking about my son on the railway station. I'm going to feel the emotion of it. Lost, no longer. Found, yes. Back home, great. The relationship is, is restored. But of course, the story isn't over. The older brother is still there, isn't he? Don't forget him, please don't. Because he is the one who all this time had remained at home at the father. We've learned what's in the younger man's heart. What do you reckon's in the heart of the older brother? Because when he gets home, according to the story, he hears the music and sees the dancing. And his inquiries reveal the reason for the festivities. But he decides not to enter the house. Now that's weird. He doesn't rejoice at the return of his brother. That's really sad. And he argues with his father. And that's really bad. So much for the obedient son tag. And once again, once again, get this, there is another rupture between the father and the other son. And in fact, as you read about this older brother, I think it's hard to find a man who more successfully condemns himself just check out his behaviour. He addresses his father without a title. That is not good. Even today, but especially back then, that's not good. He speaks like a slave, not like a son there in verse 29. He insults his father publicly, yet he claims to be obedient. He accuses his father of favouritism you know, towards the younger one. He even speaks as though he's not part of the family. He says, this son of yours, he doesn't say my brother. In fact, joy to him is a booze up with his mates and not the recovery of his brother. And he attacks the younger brother. So what will the father do? For the second time, his response is really astonishing, I think. No recrimination, no judgment, no rejection. He simply addresses the elder brother with the words, My son. You see, friends, Jesus has shown us not one, but two types of lost people. One is lawless, having moved outside the law, gone, the younger brother. He seems bad. The other one is lawless, while believing that he kept the law. The older brother, and outwardly, he looks good. Both men rebel in their own way. Both break the father's heart. Both end up, if you want to say, in a far country. In reality, both were equally lost. 
but the same unexpected love is demonstrated in humiliation to both. The younger son ultimately understands and accepts the status of being found. He knew he was lost. The elder son, so far as the story goes, does not. And where does he end up? The elder brother is the perfect example of the old saying, so near and yet so far. Years ago I used to teach... um, they call it scripture in schools. You call it scripture here? In, in New South Wales, by law, uh, you're allowed to go into the state school system and teach the Bible for half, or you know, according to your denomination, for half an hour a week. And I uh, used to do that. I had a primary school class. Kids about, you know, about, um, about 10, I suppose, 9, 10 years of age. And they'd like this here. And this little kid, he was a little wretch. Oh, you wanted to but you can't, you know. Um, and he would get up and walk around the room. So, sit down. You know. Sit down. Sit down! So, he up the aisle, turns around, puts his bottom on the chair, looks at me and says, Mr Ramsey, I'm sitting down, but inside I'm still standing up. <laughs> I, thought, I thought his response was brilliant myself. <laughs> I thought it was just... But that's the older brother. You get it? That's the older brother. Why is Jesus telling the story? You see, remember the beginning of the chapter? The tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Those first two verses, the beginning of chapter 15, explain the rest of the chapter in a sense. And if you want to say Pharisee, tax collector, older brother, uh, sorry, um, uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law, older brother, and uh, tax collector and sinners, younger brother, it kind of fits that. That's what's going on, you see. Religious leaders were condemning Jesus for accepting tax collectors and sinners. Yet Jesus indicates that these were the very people for whom God was always looking. Lost people matter to God. 5,000 ordinary people had searched for Stephen in the bush there in New South Wales 50 years ago and he didn't even know he was lost. And the creator of the universe, God the Father, is looking for you. I wonder if you realise you're lost. Because we have rejected God's rightful place in our lives and we have rejected his son. See, like the younger brother we should become aware of our condition and show a true repentance and come home and just throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And like the older brother, we should not assume that outward religious conformity will necessarily translate into a good relationship with God the Father. The best place to run away and hide from God is in church. And I've known men and women over the years to do that. I know pastors who've become converted and born again. I know elders to become converted and born again. And people have gone to church and sat with their family for year upon year, sing the hymns, give them money, um, take part in the Lord's Supper. Why, they've even gone to the ultimate end and gone on a roster. (laughs) And yet were not trusting God. You see, God has humbled himself to rescue us. The death of Jesus on the cross proves that. 
Would you not consider his love for us as astonishing? He went to the ultimate extent to rescue us. That is why the Lord Jesus himself is called a saviour. And that's why he said he came to seek and to save the lost. He wants you back. Will you return to him? Or do you want to stay lost? Like the younger one or the older one? Which one were you? Or perhaps better still, and more scarily, which one are you now? Do you want to come home? Do you want to return to the Father? Will you put aside the pride? What would people think if I suddenly declared, today, this day, I've finally done business with God and confessed to him? that I'm living my own life, my own way, on the inside. He wants you back. Will you return? Remember, it's not like some sort of TV show where you can have a different ending every week. In reality, not to return is we stay lost forever. Out of God's presence for eternity, hell is a very, very lonely place. Alternatively, we can come home and in the, in the imagery of Jesus' story to an eternal party and joy and fellowship and acceptance and security of being with a father. And to do that, the next time you would pray, you could truthfully and for the first time honestly say, My Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done because I am your son and your daughter. I can now call you my father because I've come home. You want to do that today? Why don't you do it? Pray a prayer like, Dear God, thank you for being my creator. I know I'm not worthy of your love and mercy. I've lived as if I was in charge and I've ignored you. I'm lost. And I want to come home. Please forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to bring me back. Thank you for his death. I want to live with Jesus in charge of my life. Would you pray that prayer? And there may be one person here this morning who wants to do that. So I'm going to read that prayer again. I'm going to read it very slowly. And if you really want to come home and you really want to do business with God today, no mucking around, no superficiality, but really dinky die serious stuff. And you pray that prayer after me in your heart to God now. Let's bow our head. Dear God, thank you for being my creator. I know that I'm not worthy of your love and mercy. I've lived as if I was in charge and and I've ignored you. I'm lost. I want to come home to you. Thanks for sending Jesus to bring me back. 
Thanks for his death in my place so I could be forgiven. In Jesus' name, please forgive me. Please change me. Please help me to live with Jesus as my Lord. Thank you, Father. Amen. There may be one person who has prayed like that. You don't need to tell me. But you may find it very helpful, and I think very appropriate, to speak to one of the elders or the wives, if you're a woman, perhaps one of the elders here, and just declare that is, that is something that God has moved you to today. And if you have, don't ever stop. Keep going. I've been a Christian for over 50 years, folks, and I'm so ever glad that that took place in my life.